Thanks so much, Chris, and welcome again, everyone. We are going to be uh, continuing in the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John 19, verses 25 to 30. If you'd like to turn there, you can. We can also uh, see the scripture up on the monitor. So I'm going to read from that. And we are in the midst of the crucifixion. We're in the midst of Jesus' uh, final days, final moments on earth. And um, just before this, they had nailed him to the cross. They had casted lots for his garments. And um, now the soldiers did these things in verse 25. And then standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. Paid in full. That was a popular 1980s saying for those of you that weren't born yet. It referred to being very well off. If you had money, if you drove a nice car and you wore expensive clothes and maybe even sported a fat gold chain, you were paid or paid in full. I remember the artists Eric B. and Rock M. Of course, everybody here knows, very familiar with them. They made a top rap song in 1987 under the same name, and they rapped about how they were paid in full. They had lots of cash, and all of this was, of course, because of how great they were as artists, according to their song. Now, originally, the phrase paid in full was written on receipts for bills, bills that were owed, so the debtor had proof that they were under no further obligation to the lender. It would be, as we see the, in our mind, the stamp paid in full. But all the way back into the ancient times, they would write this saying um, in whatever language, no further obligation, debt is paid, you owe nothing, you're free. And that's how the phrase got its force as a slang saying, uh, I suppose. And it means you're doing so well financially that you have no needs, no wants, no worries. At least that's what you thought. Regardless of how wealthy, regardless of how rich, financially successful someone may be, being paid in full financially or being paid in full in any other way doesn't come close to having enough of what we need to pay our debt, our ultimate debt that we owe, and that is the debt of our sin to God. God is holy, he's perfect, he's just. He cannot, but sin breaks that fellowship with God. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. No one, not one single person born into this world is paid in full enough to satisfy that debt. No mere human has ever had or has the resources to pay this debt. 
It was only Christ. Fully God, fully man, who had the resources and who, in fact, paid this debt in full to God the Father. And this justice was paid and satisfied by the blood of Christ at the cross. Now, in our text today, we see this phrase, paid in full. It's Jesus' very last words on the cross. According to John's gospel, it is. In Luke, there's one other saying. But it translates, it is finished, translates to that saying, paid in full, of what they used to stamp onto the bills that were paid. Now, this right here, a lot of people talk about Jesus being the center of all history. If we talk about Jesus' life being the center of all history, and we were to take it a step further and say what event would be the climax of that event, of that time of Jesus' life in history, it would be where we're at right now. It's a crucial point in the story of the gospel. We come to really one of the most important specific times in history. It's not only the end of Jesus's earthly life, but more excitingly for us, especially, it's the brand new beginning of a new life, or I should say a new era or epoch. John has been building up to this very moment that we're going to talk about today. John's been building this up. He's been getting that momentum. He's been hinting towards it. He's been pointing towards it from the very first chapter of his book, chapter one, pointing to God's justice being paid in full by Jesus and finalized at the cross. And he's been pointing to, most importantly out of this, the launching of that longly anticipated new age that will never incur the sin debt ever again. So today we'll look at some incredible insights that John gives us in this passage regarding the extent of the completion of Jesus's work. And I know we've talked a lot about this through our journey through John. And so I don't, I try not to repeat over and over and over some of the same things. So we're going to look today Not at some of the, we we will cover some of the stuff. We obviously, Jesus saying, hey, it's finished. It is finished. He's he's done so many things during his life. He carried our penalty for sin. He he lived perfect, a perfect life. You know, he was Moses. He was David. He was the prophets. He was everything. I mean, we, his work is monumental that he did during his incarnate ministry. But today we're going to look at things just a little bit deeper, a little bit differently, a little bit from a different angle. And we are going to see the insights this passage gives us on the completion of that work. But more importantly, we're going to see what John is telling us, obviously through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, about our kingdom responsibility now in Jesus's physical absence. It is finished means that there is now a new beginning. And that's what John is so excited about through his whole entire gospel. How do we implement this debt-free, paid-in-full status that we now have as the new human race that Jesus has launched? How do we do it for the glory of God? 
For Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to me. In John 17, 1, he said, Father, be glorified and, let, and, and, and have your Son be glorified in you. This is what the glorification of God is all about. Jesus finishing that work on the cross and then, of course, being raised from the dead. So, what are some of these insights that we want to talk about? <clears throat> and, and one of the things is, is, is and when you look at a scripture by an author, by the saint, when you, when you look at it, examine a passage of scripture, and you see a, a repetitive pattern in that specific, uh, maybe it's the chapter, passage, but most importantly, that's that author. It's something that you don't want to overlook. It's there for a purpose. And so the first thing that I see that John is trying to show here is he gives us a, a list of people that are sitting at the cross with Jesus. And this list varies depending on which gospel that you're looking at. Doesn't contradict. I'm not saying that. Um, they were all there. But John and the writers of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the people that they mention at the cross aren't just mentioned there randomly because that's what they remembered, especially if we believe John is the disciple whom Jesus loved because he was standing there right by the cross as well. Women by the cross would be okay, same with youth. The reason being is because they weren't a threat. They weren't considered to be um, uh, violent people. They weren't going to uh, be judged by the Romans as being a part of Jesus's militant uh, venture to take over the world as king. Now, if the other apostles were there, they were probably afraid that they may be joining Jesus right alongside of him at the cross. It tells us that John was probably a lot younger, probably didn't have facial hair, probably didn't look like an older guy, because children were the same way. There's, this is even practiced in some Middle Eastern countries when there's wars going on and things like that. <clears throat> especially civil wars, the women are often allowed to walk the streets and they won't be touched because they're providing for the family, they're going to get food, they're coming back, and same with children. So this is a, a cultural thing. <clears throat> but John puts a specific group of people here for a reason. <clears throat> we see the Gospels mention Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, which is um, Jesus' mother. The mother of the sons of Zebedee are mentioned in, Matt, in Mark. And Salome is also mentioned here as well in the crowd. But I believe John is trying to draw our attention to two characters. And that is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we have an interesting thing here with Mary. This is the last mention of Mary since, well, it was first mentioned, she was first mentioned in John 2. And now she's mentioned at the end here, and this is really the last mention of, of Mary in the, in the whole New Testament, other than Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were gathered waiting for the, for the Holy Spirit to come, praying Mary is listed as being there. But we never hear about her again. Acts 1.14 is what I'm referring to. And why I mention that is because if you're like me, you've come from a Catholic background. I, was, I went to Catholic school and I was raised a Catholic, I'm Italian-American. It's just a normal thing. It, you know, wasn't very serious with it. But um, I was uh, grown up around statues of Mary everywhere in my house and in my, in my grandmother's house. And uh, always wondered why, why, why was this attraction to Mary uh, so important to the Catholic 
the Roman Catholic Church. Well, Mary at the Roman Catholic Church is venerated, and that means uh, that she's worshipped, she's uh, adored. It's called the adoration of the saints. Holy people can become uh, canonized as saints, and therefore you can then pray to them, uh, you know, worship them, and ask them for certain things according to what their specialty is. Um, I forget it, what, what it was. I think it was St. Luke. Uh, was My grandmother said, pray to St. Luke. I lost my keys. Pray to St. Luke, you know. And we would pray to St. Luke, and she'd find her keys. And we'd be like, yes, this works. This is good. Mary was something even more important. Mary was is, is um, in the 12th century, she was named, um, well, the Immaculate Conception was, um, uh, was made in the Catechism a, an official doctrine. And that simply meant that Mary was free from sin. She was uh, immaculately conceived like Jesus was. And um, she is now venerated. Pray to Mary, get to Jesus faster. Why do I bring all that up? Well, I bring all that up because I want to set the record straight. And I don't want to bash Catholic people here. Maybe, you know, this is something that you have to come to by reading the scriptures. And that is in the scripture, there is nobody venerated or being taught to be venerated other than God. And the Bible says that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. So the, so the bad news is, is that if you're praying to somebody other than God up through Jesus Christ, I don't necessarily believe that God is acknowledging those prayers, although it could be through his grace that he's going to guide you into the right place. The good news is that you can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. You do not need to have anybody or any mediator other than that. We don't see it anywhere in the scriptures and obviously Mary's last appearance in the gospel of John. So I say that because this text is often used to talk about Mary and to uh, support that doctrine. But I don't want to get into that too far. I just wanted to give you that as a side note. But why does John direct his attention to Mary? Well, the last time we saw Mary was where? In John chapter 2. What happened in John chapter 2? Well, Jesus began his official public ministry. The first public ministry sign or miracle that Jesus did was with his mother, Mary. You remember what that was? They were at a wedding in Cana. And Jesus was there with her. And she said, you know, uh, they ran out of wine. And what did Jesus say? He said, woman, you know that my hour has not come. And here we see again the same phraseology. Woman, behold your son. Now the unique thing about the wedding at Cana and John 19, especially in this passage that we're at now, and this is what I believe John is drawing our attention to, is that these two chapters or these two passages act as bookends. They act as to a beginning of Jesus's ministry and the end of Jesus's ministry. The literal end of Jesus's incarnate ministry in this chapter here. It is finished. The literal beginning of his ministry, public ministry in John chapter 2. John has Jesus using the same language. 
Woman, he says, he also says, my hour has not come. And then we notice here, after he says, woman, behold your son, he says, um, behold your mother to the disciple. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her into his household. So I believe John is playing these words off of each other. And I believe he is pointing us to this conclusion of Jesus's incarnate ministry, but also the beginning of a new period. And that new period is basically life without the presence of Jesus physically. Throughout this whole entire time, Jesus has been present. He's been physically out there performing signs, showing the people that he's the true Messiah, all the way up leading to his death. And at his death at the cross, we see the ending of his ministry, but yet the beginning of this new period. Now, again, why is this so important to us? Because right now, you know, a lot of times when we pray, I think we, because God is all powerful, he's omnipotent, he's, he's, he's all powerful, and, and it's also omnipresent, he's everywhere at, the same, at, all, at all times. You can't escape him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down the depths of hell, you're there. You're everywhere. He's everywhere. But also, it does not mean that Jesus is physically present with us everywhere. Jesus, the man, God, man, is physically present in heaven now at the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned as king. And this is done by design. He leaves his ministry, he accomplishes his ministry, and now he is taken away. He's given the disciple whom he loved, representing maybe his apostles, maybe representing the church, some people say. And he is saying, I am committing this woman now to you. She's your mother. I am moving on, and she is no longer my mother. Now, technically, we could say she was Jesus' mother was. But she's not sitting up at the right hand of God next to Jesus as his mother. Come on, Jesus, get things going now. You're forgetting that, you know, that down there and Rodney over there. Come on, let, she, he's not, she's not doing that. John is telling us, I believe, here that there is a divorce that's happening. It's a good divorce. Mary played her role, but now it's time to move on. And now it's time for us to get used to life without the incarnate Jesus. So he's showing us this, not just the ending, but he's showing us that now we have this obligation to carry it forward. We are responsible for carrying out the new wine of Jesus's message. And it's sort of upside down, right? Because if somebody says, hey, do you want a glass of this old vintage wine? Or do you want a glass of this brand new wine? I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd want to taste the old wine, right? Wine gets better with age. But with Jesus, what he's talking about, new wine, is symbolic. That's why when he started his ministry, if you remember, it was one of the first few sermons that we preached here in, in John, because I think it was probably the third or fourth one. We talked about the significance of this new wine, the significance of this wedding, why Jesus chose a wedding to do his first miracle because marriage and that wedding is the ultimate picture 
of what's going to happen with heaven and earth. And it's the ultimate picture of what's going to happen with Christ and the church. They're going to come together as one. And that oneness is that new wine. It's that new error. And John is telling us now this is, this is finished and now this is the beginning. So what does that mean for us now? <clears throat> well, I think there's a lot of application here, especially because we have a guy here, the disciple whom Jesus loved, probably a young guy who was just bonded with Jesus. Let's say he's the Apostle John. That's what most commentators say, other than Izzy's professor. He says that it was Lazarus, which is a good argument for that as well. I, I think there's a good argument there, but I would err on the side that it is John for other reasons that we could talk about offline if you'd like. But this John is now he's seeing his Lord and his master and his best friend, the one who loved him, die. And he is now has a choice. Is he going to live a, a, a like somber, sorry life of the past and how great it was when Jesus was around and what are we supposed to do now and Let's just go fishing and let's just mumble and jumble around. No, he jumps on that boat. He jumps on that new boat, that error, that new error that's being launched. And he becomes one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. Somebody that wrote not only the gospel, but three epistles and also the book of Revelation. Live in the present. Live in the present. Don't live in the past. Live in the present, especially as it comes to the things of God. I believe that one of the main things that holds us back from doing what God wants us to do or has called us to do is fear. Fear of the past. Is that going to happen again? Am I going to be able to do this? Am I going to just stumble back into my old ways? You see, living now in the kingdom of God now is not about seeing uh, thrones and gold streets and all that other stuff. No, the kingdom of God in here, in our heart, means that we are to live in anticipation as if we are already in the fullness of that kingdom. Where there's going to be no sin where there's going to be no doubt, where there's going to be no pain, where there is going to be constant victory. We are able to live that way now as if we are in that new era. And the Holy Spirit, when it engages with the world, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we overcome, we renew, we reverse the curse. So get your life, and I'm speaking to myself too. I don't mean to be so crass when I say that. Get your life aligned with God's agenda. Whatever God's agenda is for you, it's time to get, forget the past. Know that this is a new era. Know that you are a kingdom person. Have the confidence that it is finished and you move forward. Go to God first with this. Understand the truth of the reality of the kingdom now and, of course, not yet. I'm not saying this is it. No. I'm saying that what Jesus started, now we have to implement. Now, as we go down this scripture here, he says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his household. And then in 28, it says, after this, 
knowing that all things had already been accomplished. Now, these are the very last moments of Jesus' life. I don't know. We could count the breaths that he has left here. He said to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. Now, why is that to fulfill the scripture? So a jar full of sour wine was standing there. Now, again, you see the parallel. John writing about the new wine that Jesus just took from water pots and he made brand new, amazing wine for the wedding back in two. And now we have him hanging on the cross naked, about to die. And he says, I am thirsty. And they give him a jar of, they, they, they get a jar full of sour wine. Now, sour wine was what the Roman soldiers drank while they were working. It's a disgusting, disgusting mixture of vinegar and like watered down wine, but, just, but mostly vinegar. It was just bitter and it tasted terrible. So this jar full of sour wine was there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and they brought it up to his mouth. And then when he received the wine, that's when he said it was finished. So we see another aspect here of the extent of this paid in full completion of Jesus's work on earth. Jesus being thirsty. Now the irony here is off the charts. See, John loved to talk about Jesus in metaphors of water. Or, if you're from South Jersey, water. (laughs) John loves to sow Jesus as the living water, providing thirst quenching for all. Give me a drink, the woman says at the well. And Jesus says, if you would have asked me, I would have given you living water. And Jesus, again, in 13 uh, of the same chapter, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. Jesus says that you will become a well of water springing up into eternal life. This is not a man who becomes thirsty. But yet we see the actual source of water, the source of living water that promises to quench the thirst of the whole entire world. It says, this is nothing compared. I don't know about you, but when I was sick a few weeks ago and I was up here and I was barely able to talk, one of the mornings I woke up and I, my throat was so dry and I couldn't even swallow. And I took a, I always have a bottle of water and I drank it down. It was the most amazing feeling. It was just, ah, everything was better in one second. That's nothing to be, to, to consume the living water of Jesus Christ. So refreshing. Nothing can compare to it. Nothing can even explain it properly. Rivers of, uh, Jesus says, whoever, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It will gush out of him. But here John shows us that the ultimate fountain of living water is dry. And Jesus, I don't believe, could have fulfilled the scripture if he said this at any other time. Because this is at the very, very end of his life. John shows us the water being turned into new, amazing, rich wine in John 2. And now we see it compared to the sour, bitter, vinegar wine requested by the living water gone dry. 
you gave me, if I had reached over that, to that nightstand and pulled a bot and grabbed a bottle of vinegar and drank it down, it wouldn't have made it worse. It would have probably killed me. I probably would have choked. I don't know if you ever have apple cider vinegar. You know, they say it cures everything. You know, try taking a little bit of that. It, it's, it's one time it got caught in my throat and I actually had to regurgitate it, right? It's a nice little picture. Yeah. Imagine, imagine doing that. But Jesus, he's dying from asphyxiation. He's, his lungs are, are being caved in. He can't breathe. He's trying to push himself up to take breath after breath after breath. He's dried out completely. And instead of just saying, hey, it's finished, he says, I'm thirsty, knowing that the scripture is going to be fulfilled, that they are going to dip this bitter wine and they are going to put it in his mouth. He is bearing this, this additional punishment almost. I, ha- I can't help but think about the water of bitterness that we read about in Numbers 5 as the adulterous wife of Israel. We talked about this back, I think, in, in, in John 8, where if a man suspected his wife of cheating on him, he would bring her to the priest and he would give her the water of bitterness to drink. And if she was guilty, and, and consequently she'd have to take her hair down, which is, uh, which is equivalent to Jesus being naked. Put the hair down, drink the water of bitterness, and if you're guilty, your gut would explode. Now, we don't see it here, but we do in the next page. In chapter 19, we see that Jesus' side is pierced and immediately blood and water spurts out. Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3.14, I've become a laughingstock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness and has made me drunk with Wormwood. To add to the picture here, we see John talking about, as Chris read, the hyssop branch that was used in the Passover ritual to dip into the blood and to put it on the doorpost of the house. That hyssop branch was also used by the priest every time he would go in and sprinkle blood onto the altar for the sacrifices to be for the people's sins to be atoned. So John shows us that they're using this hyssop branch and they're dipping it in to this wine and they're bringing it up the same as you used for the priest in the sprinkling of the blood. Psalm 51, seven, David says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow in his Psalm of asking God of forgiveness, his Psalm of repentance Hebrews 9 talks about <clears throat> the hyssop branch being used, sprinkling both the book and itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you in all the vessels inside the tabernacle. John can only be referring to the spiritual thirst which Jesus is manifesting by bearing the sin of the world on the cross. His fountain is completely dry, His sin-bearing mission is complete. And he does and shows this by drinking the wine of bitterness in his ultimate thirst. Jesus bore and quenched your spiritual thirst. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, 
You can remember a time where you thought things would satisfy you. You thought maybe if you're a guy, you thought women women would satisfy you. If you're uh, a female man, the right man will satisfy you. The right relationship. If I could just get this side hustle going and I can make this money, that's going to satisfy me. If I just can become successful in the eyes of my peers, that's going to satisfy me. You remember all the things that you thought satisfy you. Drugs, alcohol, whatever, partying. It doesn't satisfy, does it? It actually does just the opposite. It lures you in and it grets you in the neck lock and it choke hold and you out for the count and you fall to the ground and get up and say, what? Give me some more. Let me try it different this time. Maybe I didn't get it quite right. Maybe if I do a little bit more partying or I do a little bit more of this or I make a little bit more money and it doesn't work. See, if you are thirsty right now in your life, you're listening to this online or you're here, your spiritual thirst cannot be quenched by anything other than Jesus Christ, other than God giving you his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for your sins. There's no other thing that can satisfy you. You will, you will not, you'll try. And I pray, to, I pray that one day you'll remember this, years from now maybe, who knows, months, weeks. Like, that preacher was right. It's not. I remember when I realized it, when God opened my eyes, and I said, this, this, is, this, this is ridiculous what I'm doing to myself, what I'm putting myself through. I don't have to get into details. You could just imagine. And as soon as Christ saved me, it was like I had drank that cold glass of water with a dry, parched throat. And I never wanted to get back to that feeling again, ever. So if you're thirsty, come to him. If you have come to him and you're still thirsty, you're not understanding what's going on in this passage. You're not fully getting what he did for you at the cross. He, he, he took your sin. He took your shame. He took your expectation. Everything that you think that you, he nailed it to a cross. There's no more guilt for that sin that you're hanging on to in Christ. He wants you to move on from it. He wants you to look back and say, you know what, Lord? I see how you used it in my life. What I meant for evil, you meant for good. Right here in this passage, your sins are being consumed by Jesus. And so I'm telling you right now, you don't have to be thirsty. If you believe in Jesus Christ, I want you to give him everything. Give him all, 100% surrender. Take all the sins that you know that you are wrangling with and struggling with, and you give them to him and say, all right, Lord, I want to do this. I'm ready. That's what I want you to do. And then you turn from your sin. He'll empower you to do that. Now, the final aspect, I believe in the extent of this whole passage here of this paid in full completion is the ultimate statement that Jesus makes. You see, it's paid in full, as you know, we talked about, obviously, in, in the introduction. Paid in full, it's done, it's finished, it's, com- it's complete. But the word here, it is finished, it means, it means that there's no more debt, but it also means there's, a, there's a, a nuance in the original language that means it's finished to perfection. 
It's not, see, it's better. If I say your debt is absolutely cleansed away to perfection, that's even better than saying paid in full. The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Listen, he has said to me, Paul's saying this, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected. That's the word in weakness. My power is perfected in weakness. So John is saying this is a perfection. This is a perfect job. It's completely done unto perfection. It's finished. Now, again, this is Friday, right? It's Friday here, the sixth day of the week. Now, we know that John echoes Genesis everywhere. He starts out as a second Genesis in his book, the first chapter, in the beginning. And he goes through it. I've said that a hundred times if I said it once. God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and then there was the sixth day. That was the sixth day, I'm sorry. The seventh day is sleepy day, right? The eighth day is the first day of the world. The first day of creation, that eighth day. God created everything. He knew it was good. So he rested on the seventh and on the eighth new creation. The new world is created. I believe John is pointing us back to that Genesis moment. He's showing us that this new creation, this this old creation is finished as it was paralleled in Genesis. Now Jesus is finishing it here. He's going to sleep in the grave and he's going to rise again. And we all remember when we went through this, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, the first day of the week, all the gospel writers say that Jesus rose again on the first day of the week, which is a play off of that, that word week, which also can refer to time periods. This is a new week. This is a new day. That's Sunday. <clears throat> now, again, this is another, another unique thing about John and his numbers that he, 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 he likes to show us that number seven. He, he's doing it again here. And again, seven, completeness, eighth, number eight, new creation. That's the symbol. We see John, number one, he changes water in the wine. That's his first miracle that he tells us about Jesus did. Number two, healing the royal official's son in Capernaum, John chapter four. Healing the paralytic in Bethsaida, and that's John chapter five. Feeding the 5,000 in John six. Now these are the public the public miracles of Jesus. Healing the man blind from birth in John 9 and then raising Lazarus in John 11. Is John telling us the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus is that seventh miracle with the eighth being that new week of creation? I think there's a good chance he's doing it. If not, the resurrection ultimately is that sign. So John is telling us here in these last few verses of this, uh, of this passage, all is finished. All is done. All is perfected. All that was written in the law, in the Psalms, in the prophets, all the redemption that needed to be accomplished, all the forgiveness that needed to be done for every single person that believes in God through Jesus Christ, it's all done. 
Everything is there that was required to satisfy God's justice, his wrath, his love, his mercy, his grace. Everything was done and complete in Christ, and it's all finished. So the question is, what does this mean? How should we then live? As Francis Schaeffer once wrote a book. He was an expert in Christianity and culture. His book is called, How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Highly recommend the book. But in this brilliant book, he analyzed the reasons for modern society's state of affairs and presented that the only viable alternative for human beings is to live by the Christian ethic, accepting God's revelation and totally affirming the Bible's morals, values, and meaning. If Jesus killed sin's power, if Jesus defeated evil's effect on the new creation, that's why you could be destroyed, your body could be destroyed, but your evil has nothing to do beyond death. It can't touch you after that. It's amazing. If Jesus made us completely Debt-free, debt-free, no power over evil has no hold on me anymore. Fear of death has no hold on me anymore. I have the power to overcome sin. How should we live? We should live like we are debt-free. Take advantage of all the resources that a rich son would do or a daughter. Take advantage of it. Carry out the Lord's plan. Take advantage of the resources to carry out the Lord's plan because that's what you want. You don't want your plan. If you want your plan, you're on the wrong plan. God wants you on his plan and he's giving you everything you need in the completeness of his mission in order to go out and do that. What do we do? I'll tell you the first thing is forgive. Forgiveness. We're just talking about it in Sunday school. If we, if we had to rename, if we, had, if we have to name, if, if, if God says to me, all right, Pat, you're you know, in, in glory, and he raises me up, he says, what do you want to name the new kingdom? I'm going to say forgiveness land. That's what it's got to be because that's the people that are inhabiting it. Every single person in the kingdom, there won't be one unforgiven person in there. And we want to live towards that kingdom, but we walk around with bitterness and anger and unforgiveness in our heart towards people. How could we do that? Now, I'm not saying it's easy to forgive. It's difficult. But that should be our goal. The easy thing is, is just give it to the Lord. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's a, it's a mirror that you don't want to look into often because when you look at the cross, you see your own sin. And you see your own forgiveness. <clears throat> live loving God. That's simple. Love God and love your neighbor. Put him first in your life. Love your neighbor. How does that flush out for you? <clears throat> live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Pat, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? The, to feel the power of the Holy Spirit will be in direct proportion to your reliance on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit and you will feel the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about the baptism of the Spirit coming upon you. That's something God does. 
That's something he does when he, that's for another time, another subject. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit that's living inside of you right now. The Spirit of God has embodied you when you believed in Christ and now wants to be your navigator. But we quench it and we grieve it. So we have to stop doing that and we have to let it go and let the Holy Spirit lead us by relying on the Spirit. Give it a shot. How? With these, with these things I just said. Forgive. Love God. Take action steps towards loving your neighbor and you will see the Holy Spirit work. We can't hold on to the opposite of these things that are holding us back. So to summarize, we see... We saw these three things. We see John and Mary together, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, possibly Lazarus, whoever it was, as mother and son to show the completion of Jesus' incarnate ministry, calling for this new era without Jesus' physical presence, but with all, if not more, of his spiritual presence. We see the living water, the ultimate thirst quencher, becomes thirsty and dry, showing the completion of his ministry in the atoning of the sins of man, becoming completely dry and saturated with the sins of the world in order to cover and deliver his people and forgive them and to satisfy God's justice. And then we mirror that sixth day of creation, the seventh day in the tomb, and then we see Jesus on the third day as the new creation is Jesus rises from the dead And he is that firstborn of that new creation. He's the first fruit. And now each one of us with the Holy Spirit living in us are to model that same exact thing, to be that microcosm of Christ. Because Jesus completed his earthly ministry here, right right in this chapter, in this verse, it is finished. We now are not only required, but we are enabled to continue his work until he returns. So let's pray. Please, Father, open up our eyes to whatever it is that's causing us to stumble. Whatever it is from stopping us, Lord, to take that step, to be that Kingdom person, Lord, to be, able to, to, to be able to stand and put the stake in the ground, Lord, that you've won this victory. Please, Father, we need your help. We trust you. We love you. If there's somebody here that doesn't, Lord, I pray that you change their heart even right now. Give them and grant them that forgiveness, Lord, and help us to do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing this last worship song which is...